Oh, now I hear myself. There we go. All right. Good to be with you here this morning. Uh, our passage this morning is from the book of Matthew. So if you'll uh, open up any Bible you'd like on your phone, on in your pew or whatever, or if you just want to listen, but uh, it's going to be a, about 10 verses in Matthew 5, starting at verse 38. They're pretty... Some of them, they're pretty famous verses, some of these, and they kind of let me pick what I wanted to preach about this week, so I figured I might as well preach about something from uh, Jesus' best sermon, right? So that it'll be in good company. Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. You have heard that the law of Moses says, if an eye is injured, injure the eye of the person who did it. If a tooth gets knocked out, knock out the tooth of the person who did it. But I say, don't resist an evil person. If you are slapped on the right cheek, turn the other too. If you are ordered to court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard that the law of Moses says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust too. If you love only those who love you, what good is that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Here is the reading of, our, of the word of our Lord. So if you noticed in the bulletin, I, I, had, uh, I titled this one, Is He Serious? Now I know some of you might think I'm talking about myself, but no, this, I'm talking about Jesus, asking if Jesus is serious. And uh, he leaves us with a, a big one right there at the end of this passage at least. I mean, it's, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Does he really mean that? Well, short answer, yes, but longer answer, it doesn't probably mean exactly what you think it means or maybe slightly uh, nuanced. Phrases can be that way, common phrases that we've heard over the time. This passage has a, a bunch of ones that we've probably heard. This tra our translation today was maybe a little bit um, different than what you're used to, but you've heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, uh, turn the other cheek, all these kind of phrases. But um, maybe you've noticed that phrases can be a little bit misunderstood at times, or if you're not in the context or the culture, or you had to be there, you don't quite understand what they're meaning by the phrase. I, I thought of that and said, well, we, I wonder if there's, a, there's probably, I know there's American phrases like that. I, so I looked up like and found this article, I think it was someone who teaches English as a second language, it's essentially illustrating some phrases that are really hard for uh, people from other countries to come and learn English, uh, what, what they're all about. So I, I wrote down a few of these. You see, some of these I don't even really understand how they came about, but uh, like piece of cake, it's a piece of cake. You, you ever look that up and it doesn't really make any sense. Apparently it's from some like the 1800s when awards of cake 
when the prize was a cake. It still doesn't really make sense to me, but essentially it's been around a while. So, or break a leg uh, if you want telling people to do well on stage. Uh, put lipstick on a pig. Yeah, tried that one. Uh, or in a meeting, let's let's table this till later. Table. Think think about if you didn't speak English, or what would that be? Like, don't be a wet blanket. Okay, don't. Be. Or when someone's running um, and they and they trip and and land face first, we say he ate it. Uh, I don't know. Or sometimes we have to know sports and and hobbies of our culture, like oh he's right behind he's behind the eight ball. Or uh, tomorrow someone might be trying to play Monday Monday morning quarterback. I mean, think of that. You got to know uh, what football is, what a quarterback is, when we play these football games, all this other stuff. Uh, maybe you're feeling under the weather. I don't know how we came up with that one. Or, um, or you're into telling secrets, and so you spill the beans. Again, if you're not a native speaker, if you don't know these phrases, and you didn't grow up with them, those can be quite confusing. And I think. Some of that might be going on in our passage today. We we have these phrases and this teaching of Jesus, but we weren't there, and we weren't especially in that context. And so today I want to help maybe give a little bit of insight on what the context was and just a possibility of what Jesus was actually saying. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit broader and a little bit different than what you've thought of in the past. Um, well, for one, we know, I mentioned this before, we're, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. That's uh, a famous passage. Uh, message from Jesus that Matthew writes and puts together from like Matthew 5 uh, through Ma- through Matthew 7 and and so it's a it's a it's a message essentially where Jesus is talking to a lot of people more than this I'm guessing he had he had pretty big following if you know um, he was speaking to lots of people and then I hadn't really thought about this I don't think before I was doing some reading this week though about it about what what people was he talking to? Was he just talking to an average population of the town? And it and from what I I've gathered and learned, it's like no, it's probably it wasn't like just the average population. It, he was talking to the people who were destitute, who were in need, who were the downtrodden, the peasants of the culture. Because for one, if you think about it, they're the ones who probably were available to, to follow Jesus to the out into the the hillside, um, the people that were successful and the top 1% were not exactly um, looking for um, street preachers to follow around out into the into the wilderness. And so we have to think about when we're when we're listening to Jesus's teachings here, I think, remember that he's talking to a group of people that are having a rough time. They're under, for one, we know they're underneath Roman rule. They're not, they don't have their own country that they long for. They're, and they're likely poor. And on the and on the, down, the downtrodden. And if we do remember that, it helps us kind of avoid a couple mistakes, I think. Because um, oftentimes we read the scriptures now and we think, well, how does this relate to me? And that's great. But if you don't keep in mind who Jesus was talking to, it can get you just a little confused. And people, I think, have misused some of the Sermon on the Mount in that way. Because we reread it today and we think, wow, how, love your enemies and stuff. That, none of this really seems even possible. And so we've come up with, there's been people who have tried to uh, theologize and, and write commentaries about this saying, well, it must be that Jesus is talking about the future. He's, he's talking about the future kingdom time after everything is made right and, and whole again. And so 
it's not really about now. He's kind of just giving us the picture of, of the future. But think about it. If you were talking to a bunch of people who were down and out in the poorest of the poor in that culture, would you would that be a good time to say, oh, yeah, sometime way in the future, it's going to be better. I don't have any advice for you right now. Just it'll be better later. But the other side, that's one mistake I think we make when we look at the Sermon on the Mount sometimes. Another one, though, is we also look at it and think, oh, it's so hard to follow and so uh, difficult to be to do the, the, the things that Jesus calls us to do that it must be just about us realizing how sinful we are and, and just like, well, I'm very thankful that uh, God forgives me and we can just go on with our day. I can't really use this this passage as anything to live by because it's just too hard, too difficult. And so we just say it must be just something that was in the Bible to help me understand my sinfulness, which is great, but nothing to live by. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing there either with those people. He's not trying to convict them of their sin at that moment. So let's take a little closer look at these examples that he gives. So the first one in this little, uh, we're going to look through three of them a little closer, an eye for an eye. Uh, first glance, it seems that's kind of violent, isn't it? Uh, to think that uh, when I think in our culture today, when we think, well, someone uh, loses a, a body part and and it's someone's fault, then that person must lose a body part too. That seems awful, uh, revengeful, and, and violent. But we find this pat, the eye for an eye idea in the Old Testament three times, and it's actually um, it was when it first became the kind of Israel's law of the land. It was it was in order to help things more be more peaceful, because there was there's a chance, of course, when someone wronged someone else that the other party would come back and try to do something even worse, and it would go back and forth. Someone would steal maybe the sheep, and someone would come back and take five sheep. And so this idea of an eye for an eye is actually supposed to, to lower the violence and to keep it under in the right scale, stop revenge and the escalation of it, so that uh, it's we don't uh, over overdo it and just goes into a huge amount of uh, violence all over, the, all over the area. And then Jesus says, Right after that, though, he says in 39, don't resist an evil person. Now, that one I spent um, some time thinking about and reading about. That one seems interesting and confusing to me. If I just read it straight out of the Bible with this translation, don't resist an evil person. What does that mean? It doesn't sound right for Jesus even. Jesus was all about fighting for those who were, at least uh, for those who were abused and, and the poorest of the poor, helping those that were sick those are that were mis, mistreated. So what is he saying here? And I think it's been, this passage I think has been misused and abused throughout the history of, uh, of Christianity. It's, at times it, it could even be, it's been misused to tell spouses, yeah, um, you might be in an abusive relationship, but you just have to accept it because uh, Jesus says don't resist an evil person. Or... It, it, it's been misused to allow to make us just be okay with powerful people doing um, inhuman and unholy things. And I don't, that's not what this is about. Obviously, when we take the whole Bible as a whole, there's no way that Jesus is saying, don't resist the evil. That's, that just goes against the scriptures as a whole. So there must be something else about this. And in one, one of the commentators I read, it points out that this word resist, in other places, in other writings, 
is is used kind of in the form of when two armies maybe go against each other and they go up and they're going to resist one another. In, in other words, they're going to go up next and take a stand. They're, it's more of a fighting type language. And so one option here is that not to think of maybe this passage as saying don't yeah, don't don't ever uh, put up any kind of disagreement with any with the evil one. Well, what if we if it's better translated as do not violently resist the evil one or don't react violently against the one who is evil because that's what the whole context here if you think about the revenge context and 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 treating people loving our enemies that makes more sense to me that it's not allow evil to happen wherever you are but to not violently return violence for violence so that's a little bit of a summary, I think, of what Jesus says. Sorry, I misspoke before. This, now we get to the three examples of how he's illustrating that. So we get the famous one of turn the other cheek, right? That one, pretty much everybody's heard. It sounds, okay, someone hits me and I'm supposed to let him hit me again, that kind of thing. But is there more to it? So we're going we're gonna to do a little illustration here. I was going to, I warned Josh that if he was in the front row, he'd have to be a uh, volunteer. So I'm going to make him come up anyway. Because he didn't sit in the front row. So, now the, so the thing you got to remember in the context of this is that it's, we, it does say in the translation, slapping, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, then say, so uh, one of us has to be the superior, so I guess that's me. Uh, so the right cheek, let, point to the right cheek, your right cheek, that one, yeah, that's right. And other thing to remember in their context, in their culture, left hand, not really usable. It was used for unclean things, and so they didn't, they didn't use the left hand, so this is not an option. So that means the right hand slap, if the, someone slaps you on the right cheek, that means I would have to backhand like that against his right cheek, right? And that was pretty much known and reserved for things when someone is in power or, or superior or uh, could be male to female, it could be master to slave, it could be... Uh, anybody in, with money into those that are poor and downtrodden and in debt. And so it's a disrespect thing. It's not about injury. I'm not trying to injure the person, but it's an insult that they just deserve a backhand slap. Now, Jesus is saying, someone does that to you? What does he say? Does he say fight back? No. He says, turn the other cheek. So if you turn that way a little bit, he gave me that cheek. Now my options are somewhat limited. How would I... Uh, can't really backhand him again. It, and if I just go up and punch him, then everything's the, kind of the whole context has changed. That now we're we're on equal ground. It's two people fighting each other. So that, I don't really want to punch him and make him think that he's an equal with me. So just by turning the other cheek and giving me and standing up and not fighting back, uh, the, he has changed the the dynamic of the power structure right there. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, yeah. I would have clapped if I actually slapped, but anyway. So that it's not about injury and insult, or it's not about injury. It is about the insult, but by standing up to the, the perpetrator and standing up for the, your humanity as you turn the other cheek, you change the whole power structure, and it's kind of a protest of sorts. Second one, the story we have then is about um, a peasant who is sued in, in court, and again, we have to know about the context there is there's a lot of very wealthy people that kind of uh, took advantage and overwhelmed those um, 
regular members of society, and so many, many people ended up in, in deep, deep debt to the point where people would end up in debt that they would get sued in court and they would lose by the, by the law, and so the last thing they would have was their coat, essentially. That was the, the one thing that most people in that time uh, always had. It was valuable to use as obviously to stay warm, but even as a blanket at nighttime, whatever it may be, it was like to go to everyone has a coat. They even have a rule in there that if you had to give your coat to someone, they're supposed to give it back to them at night so that they at least can sleep, uh, have warmth when they're sleeping. So so it's it's a culture where we have the, the elite um, stepping on those that are low and, and in debt and poor. And so then they didn't have anything else to give. And so to, to have collateral for this, for this loan, um, sometimes they would give up their coat. And, and in this translation, again, translations are tricky again, like we know. It says, I think it talks about giving, if you ask for your cloak or, let's see, where is he? If you're giving your coat, if you're giving your shirt taken from you, give your coat too. But if you look in Luke, there's almost the exact same passage, except he switches it and says it the other reverse. And so the, the trickiness of the translation of what shirts and coats and cloaks and all what all that means is kind of uh, hard to understand. But what I've come to learn is it, it's probably fair to say if someone asks for your outer garment, then give them your undergarment too. If, you're, if someone asks for your outer cloak, then give them your underwear too. Now, what, how would that change things in a hurry? If you're in a courthouse, oh, yeah, we're going to do a demonstration now. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> so how would that change things, though? If you were in a court case, and instead of the, the person who was getting sued and, and, and things are being taken from them, instead of just um, fighting and getting angry and and all these different things, maybe. Instead, they're like, well, I'm going to show them, make a little bit of a protest of this. Fine, have my coat. Here, have all my clothes. Now what are you going to do? What are you going to take now? Then he walks out of the courthouse, and all his friends are like, uh, you're naked. And they ask him. And so it all of a sudden, the embarrassment moves, in a way, from the person who's losing their clothes to, to the abuser or the one who is taking advantage of the system. And so it's a protest, again, of sorts, where... Jesus is saying, if they, if they want your coat, just give them your clothes, all your clothes, and see what happens then. Instead of being humili humiliated for you know losing your coat, you flip over the shame and humiliation to the person who is abusing the system and the, their power, kind of pointing out, in a way, the absurdity of the whole, the whole system where people could be that much more wealthy than the, than those that have no coats. So. Another little, it's another way of looking at it is it's kind of empowering the oppressed people. Uh, Gandhi wrote once, the, the first principle of nonviolent action is that of non-cooperation with everything humiliating. So I thought the first, a nonviolent action, which is kind of a lot of the things we're going to talk about today, is, is protesting nonviolently. Is the first, time, first thing to do is to, to not cooperate with everything humiliating. So one more little illustration of that, the soldier. So there's soldiers in that time, of course, and apparently there was also um, under the law, you could they could ask other people to carry things for them for a mile or whatever. We even see that in the story of Jesus and the cross, and Simon gets asked to carry the cross. The Apparently it was abused for 
um, lots of times. If you can imagine, a soldier would probably abuse it if they could just ask people maybe to carry whenever they wanted as much as they wanted. So they made laws of like, you can only have them carry it for one mile. And so I think that gives rise to why it says, if a soldier asks you to carry it for a mile, then Jesus says, well, what would he do if you carry it two miles? Like you give him a, your, your things, which are probably 50 to 70 pounds, and it's already ruining. It's, imagine the the wrinkle that puts in your day if you are trying to make a living all day long and then the soldier comes along and you have to walk a mile one way and then walk a mile back just um, to get back to what you were doing. And Jesus is saying, if they're going to abuse the power, abuse like that, and he says, carry, carry my things for one mile, and you carry it for a mile, and you're like, I'm going to go another mile, and the soldier's going to be, uh, I'm not allowed, I'm going to get in trouble for that, I, you better not do that. Or it changes the power dynamic again, because you're not, uh, it's, a, it's another nonviolent protest. So Jesus, in this, says, turn the other cheek. It's, if we think about that phrase, then it's kind of summarizing this again. He's not saying be a doormat. He's not saying just go along with whatever injustice there is. But he's also not saying promoting violence and fighting back with violence, which is essentially saying don't repay evil with evil, which we find in, in Romans later from Paul's writings. Jesus is calling on us to stand against evil, but in a nonviolent way. Uh, one of the favorite authors I read about this topic a little bit this week was a guy named Walter Wink. I thought that was a cool name, Walter Wink. Uh, and he came up, kind of summarized it in something he wrote, where Jesus is not, usually you think about getting challenged with something like that, and you're going to either have to fight or flight, right? You're going to run away, and or you're going to have to violently fight back. But he's saying, he's pointing out in this, in these passages here, Jesus is kind of essentially saying there's a third way. There's another way to look at that. And he, he lists a few uh, descriptions of what this third way is, and he says it better than I do, so I'm just going to read a few of his phrases. He says that Jesus' third way finds a creative alternative to violence. This third way asserts your own humanity and dignity as a person. The third way meets force with ridicule and humor, or humor. It also breaks the cycle of humiliation. It refuses to submit or to accept the inferior position. And it exposes the injustice of the system. It makes the powers make decisions for which they were not prepared. Kind of puts them on their heels. But it also, the third way, is, a, is the way of being willing to suffer rather than retaliate. So Jesus' third way is a way to oppose evil without becoming the evil that you're opposing. The, the fight or flight, if, I mean, if you, if you decide, I'm just going to run, that's, that leads to submission and passivity and withdrawal and surrender. Fighting leads to armed revolts and violence, rebellion, direct retaliation, and revenge, is, what, is how Walter, Walter Wink describes it here. So between those two options, neither one seems quite the way of Jesus. Jesus is saying, there's a third way. There's a third nonviolent way to love your enemies. Now, it's not the thing that's kind of tricky about this, I think, is this passage. Jesus is not giving us some to-do list. Like, you have to follow these things to the T every time this happens to you and to be my follower. I, this is more of a, a, 
a way of Jesus's being creative and illustrating how you could react to different situations. If you if you gave away your coat every day to someone, it, it obviously it doesn't make it doesn't work and it doesn't have doesn't make sense all the time. But it's a way to to fight and protest when the time is correct. The it's a way to also hopefully not make enemies, but to it, or not to keep your enemies, but to turn your enemies into to friends. Another one, a person who I think illustrated this um, the most, and maybe in our culture, we have Martin Luther King. He wrote, uh, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So this, all these stories and ideas and creative solutions to, to, uh, to, to resist evil, are essentially ways I think then the next passage describes about loving your enemies is how we how do we love those that are against us? He, Jesus kind of points out it's silly just to say oh, I love those who love me. That's that's easy. Everybody does that. But does it does Jesus is Jesus then saying well we have to have loving warm feelings for everybody and our enemies especially? I don't think that's what Jesus is specifically talking about feelings. He's talking about a love that desires good for everyone, desires good to happen both to our friends and enemies. You might not feel that love, but you're, you're desiring for them to have, be, to have good things happen. It doesn't mean, and it definitely doesn't mean to defend those that abuse, abuse people or mistreat others. We do not stand by while those things happen, but it's a way to, to fight back nonviolently and to bring justice to the oppressed. And ideally, to turn the oppressor from their ways and turn that enemy into a friend. Now, it's not, not an easy thing to do. And I think Jesus knew that it was an easy thing to do. He's, and he says, you should pray for your enemies. And I, don't, and I don't think he's actually probably talking about the kind of prayer like, oh, I really hope you change him because he's really, really mean. I, I mean, we pray for them, but I think also prayer changes us that way. Prayer is changing our hearts and our feelings and our thinking towards our enemies. And that's how we get to be what verse 45 says, children of God. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. That doesn't say, notice, it doesn't say that's how you beget, get to be children of God, Father. That says that's how you act like children of the Father. He's not saying you have to earn your way to be my child. He's saying, if you'd like, this is the way to act as a child of the Father. It's not an overnight thing, though, for sure. It's, it's not easy, and it doesn't happen quickly. And th Which kind of brings us to our last verse, the one that we were really, would really ask Jesus, like, are you serious? And that's, but you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So I guess... Again, though, there's context, and there's this time there's a little bit of translation needed. The, the word perfect um, comes from the Greek-based word of telos, which has more about you know, other translations and other ideas of being complete or to be made mature. or to. Um, and so instead of maybe looking at it as being perfect as, you, as your Father in heaven is perfect, as, you, as we think of perfect as like without mistake or never making a moral uh, mistake, this would be more about... Be whole, be complete, 
be made mature in your faith. It's calling us to be a, the full human that Jesus and God calls us to be, to be who God made us to be. Not an easy thing to do, but it, it does make it at least something that we're called to do versus looking at this passage and saying, ah, it's impossible, so I'll just not do it at all, not try at all. This passage is for us today, but it's it's for those, it's it's for fighting in a nonviolent way, a way of protesting those that abuse abuse us, abuse us and abuse others. So I want to close with uh, a quote then also from one of the authors uh, I read on this passage named David Lose. He's a professor, I believe, in Minnesota right now. Uh, and so when he when he's asking the question, can we be perfect or can we love our enemies? This is how he says. He responds, can we do this? Turn the other cheek, love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us? No, not perfectly. On some days, maybe not at all. But that's not really the point. It's not our job to bring in the kingdom. Jesus does that. It's our job to live like we really believe Jesus actually is bringing in God's kingdom and to realize that we get to practice living like Jesus as disciples and citizens of this new kingdom in the meantime. So let's go out and, and practice and live like Jesus is bringing in the kingdom here and now. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this chance to we have to gather and to read from the scriptures and hopefully get a little understanding, Lord, of how you call us to not return evil with evil, but to stand against evil with love. Thank you, Lord, for this challenge. We pray for your spirit to give us power to live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.